0: Try and find a way to eat less saturated fat, eat less total fat. Those are two changes that are going to have a profound effect on your overall health. And if you can just focus on those two and replace those fat-rich foods with the whole carbohydrates that I just described, fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains, that right there is going to translate to exceptional long-term health. And then once you've made that change and and take your time making that change, it could take you three months, six months, a year. Personally, I don't care how long it takes you because I'm not the food police. All I care is that you start to make these changes in your life. And, you know, let's say it takes you six months to make this full change. I'll give you a giant high five for that. That's awesome. Right. At that point, when you found a way to make a sustainable change, then you can start to put in the more complex things about fasting, about changing your exercise patterns, about changing your alcohol consumption, your sleeping patterns, your stress levels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and I want you to hear something. 88 million Americans, 88 million are pre-diabetic, and out of those 88 million, 84% have no idea that they're pre-diabetic. So I couldn't think of a better time to have the conversation than the one that you're going to listen to today with Cyrus Kambata. Cyrus is an internationally recognized nutrition and fitness coach and co-founder of Mastering Diabetes, which is also the name of the New York Times bestselling book that he wrote. Cyrus takes us through his incredible journey as a type one diabetes survivor and explains how his ailing health inspired a drastic change to his diet, as well as a career path. Cyrus earned his Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Stanford in 2003, before getting a PhD in nutritional biochemistry from the University of California at Berkeley in 2012. Cyrus's evidence-based approach to nutrition has helped thousands of people with various forms of diabetes reverse insulin resistance using food and different lifestyle changes. So today is going to be a very in-depth conversation about insulin resistance, about diabetes, about prediabetes, and how to reverse all this so that you can live longer and live a better life. And some of the things that we talked about that I think you're really going to enjoy is how to tell if you're prediabetic or not. Cyrus shares his story of how he overcame type 1 diabetes when he was 22 years old and how the life-threatening condition inspired a drastic change in his life. We get into what insulin resistance really is and how it relates to being pre-diabetic and how to reverse it. We discuss whole carbohydrates versus refined carbohydrates and which is healthier for you. Uh, we get into the exceptional health benefits of non-starchy vegetables. More importantly, we discuss some simple steps you can take to reverse type 2 diabetes through different lifestyle changes. And then lastly, we, we talk about how to incorporate things like fasting and exercise and sleep To further better maintain and improve your healthy lifestyle. And I'm really looking forward to sharing this with you because this is going to be a conversation that I think is going to be life changing for for many of you listening. For maybe it's a loved one, maybe it's somebody you know that is struggling with prediabetes, somebody who's diabetic and just can't seem to figure out how to finally grab a hold of something that has been bringing them down for, for quite a bit of time. So without further ado, Let's get this conversation going and welcome Cyrus Kambada to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Cyrus, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Doug. It's awesome to be here. I'm excited to chat with you, man, because I know right now you have created, co-create, I should say, an amazing program called Mastering Diabetes that stemmed from your own story of overcoming adversity with diabetes and autoimmune diseases, but- I was just ch- chatting with you before. And I think something that's really interesting to start with before we hear your story is the numbers is that I was looking on the, on the CDC's website today, and they said that one in 10 people, uh, one in 10 Americans have diabetes and of those one in 10, 90 to 95% will have type two diabetes, which is more like the quote unquote lifestyle diabetes. Correct. And then- It also said that 88 million, 88 million Americans are pre-diabetic. That's one in three people. Here's the scary part. 84 percent, 84 percent have no idea that they're pre-diabetic. So before we get into your amazing comeback story, how can people discover if they're pre-diabetic?
0: What are some of the signs and symptoms to get things started? Yeah, it's great. So I'm glad you brought up these statistics actually because these numbers are almost like they're too large for me to like fully wrap my head around because I don't even, I can't visualize a million, let alone 85 million. You know, like these are very, very large numbers. But the point is, is that when you hear these statistics where people say, oh, you know, by the year 2030, one in five people will have diabetes. By the year 2050, one in three people will have diabetes. You're like, what? How's that possible? Right. But, but what they're saying is that. This cohort of people who are the 85, 88 million people who are living with prediabetes, most of whom don't know about it, if they turn into people living with type 2 diabetes or when a large proportion of them turn into people living with type 2 diabetes, then you have a real problem because now you're going to have hundreds of millions of people around the United States living with diabetes, which is going to be you know 20, 30, 40% of our population. So it's, it's a really big deal. So to answer your question, you know, how do you know if you're living with prediabetes? Well, when you go to the doctor, one of the, one of the tests that your doctor will administer on like an annual checkup is this thing called an A1C. And an A1C is just a, a marker of your average blood glucose over the course of about three months. Okay. So the magic number here is there's two magic numbers. Number one is 5.7. Okay. If your A1C comes back as less than 5.7%, what that means is that you don't have any diabetes. You are, you are not pre-diabetic. You do not have type 2 diabetes. You are non-diabetic, and that's a good thing. I want to keep you there. If your A1C comes back and you're between 5.7 and 6.4, then that's technically pre-diabetes. And then if you are 6.5 or beyond, that means that you are likely living with type 2 diabetes. Okay? And so all your A1C is really measuring is the percentage of all the hemoglobin molecules that are circulating inside of your red blood cells that have glucose attached to them. So like quick crash course here in biology. Okay? You have trillions of hemoglobin molecules. Okay? You have trillions of red blood cells that are in circulation at all times. The primary purpose of red blood cells is to deliver oxygen to tissues. So what happens is that you take a deep breath in and you go, and you inhale oxygen and nitrogen. Okay. The oxygen goes, the, the gas basically goes into your lungs. Inside of your lungs, you have these things called alveoli. And the alveoli are these little sacs where the oxygen is transferred from your lungs into your blood. So inside of your blood, you have these things called hemoglobin. And hemoglobin, you can think of it as like a catcher's mitt, right? The, the catcher's mitt is sitting there, it's wide open. And as soon as the, uh, the oxygen is transferred to the hemoglobin molecule, the hemoglobin molecule traps that oxygen, and then it moves and it circulates that oxygen to tissues who need it. It circulates it to your brain, to your thyroid gland, your liver, your kidney, your sexual organs, your muscle tissue, you name it, right? So the hemoglobin that's in circulation can also get glucose attached to it. And a certain amount of hemoglobin is supposed to have glucose attached to it in a normal situation. And that's 5.7 or less percent of all hemoglobin molecules. But if the amount of glucose that's attaching to these hemoglobin molecules starts to go up over the course of time, then that's an indicator that there's too much glucose in your blood. So the more glucose is in your blood, the more glucose is going to attach to hemoglobin. And as a result of that, your A1C value, which is the amount of glycosylated hemoglobin starts to go up and up and up and up and up. So mm-hmm. that's basically what, why they're measuring hemoglobin.
1: Well, and I'm sure there's probably still a lot of people that, that don't go to the doctor and still will never know what their, their blood sugar levels are, or their A1C is. Right. And so I think that it, this is going to be something that a lot of people are going to get a lot out of because chances are, if you're listening to this, you know, a third of you are pre-diabetic and out of those, a third, Um, just by the numbers, 84, 85% of you might not know that you have it. So before we get into the weeds on what causes prediabetes, type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and we talk about insulin resistance and how to reverse all of this, Mm -hmm. you got an amazing story, man, and what you've been able to do with your moment of adversity and a massive setback that I'm sure had you panicking as as a kid who was a senior in college athlete you worked out you thought you were otherwise healthy and then you had this massive scare where you ended up in the hospital so talk about where you were in that moment what was your lifestyle like and then how that inspired you to do what you're doing today we will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second but first wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsor legion If you're anything like me, you only take the best of the best when it comes to supplements, and you're always looking for those that are also backed by science, use natural sweeteners, and fully transparent with their ingredients. This is why I love the products at Legion, which is also the number one all-natural sports supplement company in the world. I currently am enjoying their vanilla plant protein, which goes into a post-workout smoothie after I work out, or it acts as a quick snack while on the run or between clients and interviews. I think we can all agree that 2021 is a year that we need to make health a priority, which is also why I consistently take their triumph multivitamin and immune support to ensure that I am doing everything I can to feel my best. So if you want to follow my lead and take the best supplements around that have free shipping and a hundred percent money back guarantee, go to buylegion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug to get 20% off your first order. Again, it's by legion.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug at checkout. Now back to the show.
0: Yeah, great question. So I was basically, you know, I grew up as a happy go lucky kid. I've been an athlete my whole life. I played soccer. I played baseball. I ran. And I was one of those kids. And My mom called me a hellcat from a young age. You know, she was just like, I, ju- I put you in every sport because you just had so much energy. I didn't know what to do. You know, that was just normal to me. So by the time I get to college, I'm still really active. I'm lifting weights, I'm playing soccer. And all of a sudden I started to feel like super low energy. And this was, uh, I was 22 years old. So a senior year in college. So I'm, I'm like, you know, trying to graduate. I'm at Stanford university. I'm just sort of like trying to move on with my life and go get a job and do, you know, like become, you know, a productive member of society. And then all of a sudden I was like, man, why am I so low energy? Like this is, this is debilitating. And I also noticed that my thirst was just getting pretty out of control. I mean, it was to the point where like I was trying to study for finals and then like I would take a, a, a swig of water and I put it down. And then like literally 30 seconds later, I was like, oh, I think I'm thirstier. And then I would take like a big gulp of water and put it down. And then like two minutes later, I was like, man, I'm literally getting thirstier by the minute. This doesn't make sense, right? So over the course of a 24-hour period, I was drinking at least one gallon of water, sometimes one and a half gallons of water. And this was happening for like two to three days energy levels super low. And then in addition to that, when I went to sleep at night, I was cramping. Like I would, you know that feeling where you're lying down and all of a sudden like your calf muscle cramps. Yeah. And it's really painful because it's like you're sleeping and you don't want that. And so like my calf muscle would cramp and then I would I would try and manipulate my legs so that I could like relieve the tension. And then in the process of doing that, my butt would cramp and then my ab would cramp and then my left calf would cramp on the other side and then all of a sudden my shoulder would cramp. And I was literally there were moments where I was lying in my bed. And it felt like I was in full body, like rigor mortis. And I was like, oh my God, would this go away, please? I don't even understand what's happening. And because I was taking on so much fluid, I was going to the bathroom like clockwork every 30 minutes. Just like, you know, it was just completely overtaking my entire day. So I pick up the phone and call my sister. She's a a doctor of osteopathy. She's brilliant. And I was like, Shanaz, these are my symptoms. What is going on with me? And she starts crying immediately. She's like, Cyrus, drop everything that you're doing. Just go straight to the health center. I was like, why? What, what, what's, the, what's the problem? She's like, you're explaining that you have type 1 diabetes. I do not have time to explain, but trust me, this is very important. Go to the health center right now. So I was like, all right, fine. So I go to the health center. They admit me. They take a finger stick of, of blood. They put it into a blood glucose meter. They go into a different room and they come back like three minutes later. And in three minutes, I'm, I'm passed out. I'm literally lying on a bed. It's like kind of getting a little foggy. And, uh, I hear the door open and I wake up and I look at the, the nurse and I think to myself, I'm like, okay, where am I? Okay. I'm in a, I'm in a health center. How did I get here? Did I, did I bring myself here? Did I, did she bring me here? Who is that woman? Why is she looking at me? What, what information does she have for me? And she literally looks at me. She goes, how did you get here? And I was like, I walked. And she's <laughs> like, we got to get you to the hospital right now. And I was like, what, what is going on? She's like, well, Your blood glucose is in the 600s. It's six times higher than it's supposed to be. And just for reference, your blood glucose is supposed to be between like 80 and 130. And mine was up in the 600s. She's like, we got to get you to the hospital right now. So they take me to the hospital. I'm there 30 minutes later. And while I'm there, they they start giving me an IV of, of saline into one arm so that I can get rehydrated. And then they also start giving me insulin. And their job was to try and bring my blood glucose of 600 all the way down to like a reasonable number of like mid 100s or so where it was supposed to be. And they explained to me while I'm at the hospital that I have not one, not two, but three autoimmune conditions. And I was like, my, my whole world just like, you know, exploded in that moment. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, it turns out that you have, you, you just developed type one diabetes. And that's why all of these things are happening. That's why your glucose is high. That's why I got no low energy. That's why you're drinking a ton of water. But prior to that, you also developed two other autoimmune conditions. The first one is called Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Okay. So that's what a lot of people who are suffering from hypothyroid, like low thyroid hormone output, are experiencing in today's world. And then in addition to that, I have another thing called alopecia, which is like, which is why I have no, as you can see, I have no hair, I have no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. I got zero body hair. And I got one, two, three, bam, bam, bam within a six month period. So uh,
1: let me pause really fast. Did did you experience any sort of symptoms prior to this or was just something that was just super
0: like immediate and you had
1: no idea where it was coming from?
0: So six months prior to getting diagnosed with type one diabetes, my hair had started to fall out. Mm. No question. My hair was falling out in little patches. Like I got on the the front of my scalp and then on the side of my head and the back of my head. And so I knew that there was a problem with like my hair leaving, but the doctors thought it was ringworm. So they were treating me for ringworm by giving me cortisone injections. And trust me when I say a cortisone injection directly into your scalp is literally one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. I mean, they had to have two doctors in the room, one to literally pin my head to the, the hospital bed and another one to come in with a syringe and try and inject. But Ouch. the idea here is they were like, they had misdiagnosed that, which is fine. No, no harm to them. But that was an autoimmune condition. And then in addition to that, I was also developing hypothyroidism. And I could feel that because when you develop hypothyroidism, there's a whole collection of symptoms. The, the most prominent system is unbelievable sluggishness to the point where like, sometimes I couldn't even get out of bed because it was hurting or it was so painful to, to move my body. Right. So I was experiencing those symptoms, but they hadn't been officially diagnosed until I get to the hospital. And then they say, Oh, Hey, by the way, boom, boom, boom. You have one, two, three autoimmune conditions. They discharge me from the hospital 24 hours later and they go, here you go. They give me a blood glucose meter, test strips, a prescription for two different types of insulin syringes, a carbohydrate counting guide and a life alert bracelet. And the life alert bracelet basically says, Hey, if you find me passed out on the sidewalk, call 911. right I have type 1 diabetes, and so I'm sitting here just being like, "Oh my God, you kidding me. I went from being like a normal happy-go-lucky kid to three autoimmune conditions, seven prescriptions, or like seven you know pieces of medical equipment, and uh, it was like within 24 hours, and I was like, "What just happened to me? What did I do? Did I do this? Is this my fault? Did I do something wrong? Right. So I went through this whole like psychological process of trying to figure out, like, did I cause this to myself? Did I not cause this to myself? Is this my fault? And I was pointing a finger at myself over and over and over again, thinking like I'm I'm the cause, but I don't know what it is that I did that caused this problem. So long story short, I ended up listening to the doctors because I was terrified at that moment that like, you know, my health was going down the tubes and it was going down the tubes fast. And, you know, when you're diagnosed with type one diabetes, they put the fear of God into you. I mean, it is no joke, right? Because type one diabetes is a, life, a life-threatening condition. And the way that it can be life-threatening is if you just give yourself too much insulin. You can overdose on insulin if you're not careful, and then you can drive your glucose so far down that you can end up going to the hospital or passing out or you know getting into a coma. It's, it's not fun. But point being is that there's this fear associated with type one diabetes that like, if you don't do it right, then like either you're going to suffer some complications and you're going to lose a kidney or you're going to lose your eyes or your, you know, your fingers and hands are going to get cut off or you're going to kill yourself because you're going to inject too much insulin. Right. So that you're sort of like, you're crippled and you're like, I, I, I don't know what to do, you know? So they told me they were like, Cyrus, the most important thing that you can do is eat a low carbohydrate diet. So I want you to eat a lot of, you know, I, I want you to avoid eating fruits and grains and potatoes and rice. And you can eat a lot of like meat and dairy products and peanut butter and avocados and olive oil and things like that. And I was like, all right, whatever. Sounds like a plan. I'll go do that. So I did that for about a year. And the whole point was to keep my glucose controllable and to keep my insulin use low, but that didn't work. My glucose was a disaster. It was was a freaking disaster. Any moment of the day, my glucose could be between a 50, which is dangerously low to a 450, which is dangerously high. And it was just like a ping pong. It was just fluctuating. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? I don't even understand. Like I'm trying this low carbohydrate thing. It's just not working. And then in addition to that, I couldn't be as active as I wanted to be. I'd go play a game of soccer and it would take me like four days to recover from it because my muscles were just like tight and my, my joints were tight. And I was like, what is going like, on? I, I literally feel like I'm 80 years old right now. This doesn't make sense. So I just started looking for more information and I came across a guy who was a nutrition expert and he teaches people how to eat a plant-based diet. And I was like, listen, I I don't really care. Like I'll eat it. I'll eat whatever. I just want to be healthier. I just want to be able to like go and play a game of soccer and go to the gym and like have a normal glucose value. Is that possible? And he was like, trust me, I'll teach you everything you need to know. So his name is Doug Graham. He went on to write a book called the 80-10-10 diet. And this guys he literally saved my life. So he shows me over the course of a week, he was like, listen, we're going to switch you over to eating a a plant-based diet and you're going to be eating a low fat plant-based diet coming from all whole foods. None of this processed vegan stuff, but like fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains. Okay. And so he sort of taught me the philosophy and with him, he's a raw food instructor. So he teaches you how to eat basically fruits and vegetables. So I started eating his way. Doug, I cannot even tell you what happened to me. Like within seven days, my glucose fell like a rock. I mean, used to be elevated average blood glucose 200 to 250. Within 24 hours of eating this way, my glucose started to come down quickly. And as a result of that, I had to start backing off on the amount of insulin I was giving myself. So I gave myself less and less and less insulin, and I started to feel more hydrated much more energy, able to sleep through the night properly, could exercise much, you know, much more endurance. I was, I had more energy when I was actually exercising. And I felt like, a, like it literally felt like I took a, a wall chart, like a, a, a charger and stuck it into a wall socket. And I just got like electrified with energy. It was amazing. So knowing what you know
1: now, and we're going to get into your education here in a minute and everything mm-hmm. that you're teaching now, looking back, like what do you think you can attribute to these to this inconsistent these inconsistent blood glucose levels was it that you were just eating what you wanted even though it it didn't have carbs i mean i'm sure you were eating a lot of ultra processed meats ultra processed dairy just eating whatever even though it didn't have carbs you were allowed to eat it and then combine that with the fact that you were super active super athletic and we all know the importance of carbohydrates for recovery so you're probably stressing the, the crap out of your body on top of all of that which i'm sure is not helping your glucose levels and your ability to process food in, in a proper way. Do you think that played a role in it? For
0: sure. For sure. I think that the missing link here actually is that the, this advice of eating a low carbohydrate diet, it's effective and it's not effective at the same mm. time. Okay. It's effective in the short term. And for most people that switch over to eating a low carbohydrate diet, whether it's a paleo diet or an Atkins diet or a ketogenic diet, they get results. And so like the things you see on the internet, people aren't lying. They lose weight. They lower their blood pressure. They lower their A1C. Their fasting glucose. Their fasting insulin. Like all of these things improve in the short term. And I personally did not experience that. But you know, I've seen the biology. I've read thousands of papers, and I understand exactly what's actually happening. But what what is misguided about this low carbohydrate methodology, which I think is just a giant sore spot in the in the like what do you call it, in the medical world, is that when the medical uh, professionals see that a short-term solution is pretty darn effective. What they do is they make the assumption that it also is going to be a long-term solution and it's not. And so there's a huge disconnect between the things that happen in the short term and and what is potentially going to happen in the long term. And the research is pretty darn clear that demonstrates that these short-term improvements in many biomarkers and especially in losing weight quickly is beneficial, but then in the long term you end up with low carbohydrates increasing your risk for cancer, increasing your risk for high blood pressure, increasing your level of insulin resistance, which we'll go into detail about, increasing your risk for what's called all cause mortality, which is premature death from any cause. Right. So it's like in the short term you get all these reductions in biomarkers, but in the long term you get an increase in all these biomarkers. And it's confusing. And I'm perfectly, you know, the first person to admit that it's very confusing.
1: So do you think the ketogenic diet has has taken or has become very popular because of people's almost addiction to these these instant gratification short-term results so it's sold on the fact that okay if you have diabetes here's here's the band-aid approach take some insulin cut out carbs go keto eat whatever you want as long as you're not eating carbohydrates and then they see these these vast improvements these big improvements in a short period of time and people mm-hmm. are like yes I got what I wanted. I'm feeling better. My numbers are looking good. My doctor's going to be happy. But what you're saying is you've seen time and time again that what tends to happen is, yes, they have short-term results and they do see success. But long-term, over, over a period of years, these same health
0: problems tend to come back and, in fact, can get worse, right? They get worse. Absolutely right. And, and I think you, you hit it on the head here, which is that instant gratification is always a good thing. So regardless of the diet, whether it's a ketogenic diet, a plant-based diet, whether it's calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, whatever it is, if you can do something today and you can get a pretty good quick result from it within the first week, two weeks, month, two months, that's that's a pretty strong sell, right? right. That's a good indicator that what you're doing is actually leading to you know improved health. Fine. I'll, I'll give people that. But then in addition to that, I think where I where I kind of get a little bit frustrated but you know what I'm tr- trying my hardest to improve is the the science the science is misleading it is very misleading and it is very confusing and so you know if you go look through the scientific literature what you'll find is that over the course of the last 100 years the mechanism of high fat diets causing insulin resistance is extremely well described. I mean, you couldn't be more crystal clear about this particular mechanism. And we I can even share my screen and just walk people through what the actual mechanism is.
1: Now, do you think it's because people, you know, you hear a lot about people if they if they don't go through stress, for instance, and they just shy away from stress and their ability to manage stress becomes harder? Do you think it's a result of people not working that quote-unquote glucose muscle and not eating carbs? So then their ability to manage their glucose levels becomes harder because they're just not eating carbohydrates in general.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So there's from a biological perspective, there's actually, there's, uh, there's basically like two, you can think of yourself as basically operating in two different modes. You're either operating in what I call the carbohydrate economy or the glucose economy, right? And then you're operating in the fatty acid economy. Okay. And so mammalian biology, whether you're a human, whether you're a dog, whether you're Uh, a deer, whether you're a monkey, we all kind of have a very similar physiology and that fat and carbohydrate are not friends with each other. They're different chemical structures, they're different chemical entities, and they have a completely different set of enzymes that's responsible for the metabolism of either one of those two, you know, macronutrients. So the point is, is that when you are eating a diet that contains a significant amount of carbohydrate energy, you, you upregulate and turn on the machinery inside of your liver, inside of your muscles that are responsible for metabolizing carbohydrate energy. Okay, this is just straight, pure biology, right? You eat carbohydrate-rich food, you activate the enzymes that's responsible for breaking them down, for absorbing them, for transporting them, for uptaking them, for burning them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera when you operate in the fatty acid economy because you're eating a lot of fat rich foods then you upregulate those enzymes in your liver and in your muscle right and the problem is that both carbohydrate you know the carbohydrate machinery as well as the fatty acid machinery they're sort of opposing machineries so when one of them is active then the other one is suppressed and vice versa when the other one is active then the initial one is suppressed so when carbohydrate machinery is active fatty acid Uh, oxidation enzymes, fatty acid storage enzymes, fatty acid uh, uptake enzymes. They're just, they're naturally depressed because there's actually an inhibitory pathway that turns them to become less active. So to answer your question, it's like when you're not exercising your glucose muscle, in other words, when you're operating in the fatty acid economy and you're not eating carbohydrate energy and not getting a sufficient amount of glucose in your body, then what ends up happening is that you've effectively slowed down your carbohydrate machinery. And as a result of that, when you go and eat carbohydrates, boom, now all of a sudden your glucose goes sky high because it actually takes a little bit of time to activate that machinery and get it operational once again.
1: Mm. yeah, that makes sense. And I think I think there's a lot to unpack there because I think you're right. You know there's a lot that's been misstated, I think, in in how to manage diabetes. I mean, I've had people that have come to me that have gone keto and they they're like, Oh, I'm going keto. I'm just going to eat salami. I'm going to eat cheese. I'm going to drink milk. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I'm like, I mean, that's keto, but it's not healthy. Correct. Right. And there's a big difference. And then there's also people that are quote unquote vegan. And just because they're not eating animal products, they think it's healthy and it's not because they're eating a lot of processed crap and, and stuff. And, and they, I think can be misguided in turn that, OK, just because I'm, I'm vegan and it says the V on it, you know, and that I'm good and I'm going to be healthy. And the same thing with gluten free and you go on and on with these lies that I think people have been fed through the years. And and I also want to frame up something really quick because there's probably people listening They're like, oh, how do I know that Cyrus isn't just another person who's plant-based just trying to get people to eat more plants?
0: Yeah. Like what's Cyrus's agenda? Sure. Sure.
1: Yeah. So if you could share just for a minute about your background and Mm -hmm. you actually went to school and got a PhD in this very subject so that people could, you know, understand that you're coming at this from
0: a place of science. For sure. Okay. So quick educational background here. When I was diagnosed with type one diabetes, I was uh, studying mechanical engineering at Stanford University. So I was literally getting trained as, a, as an engineer, thinking like an engineer, operating like an engineer. So I got diagnosed with type one diabetes. Over the course of the next two years, I was actually working at NASA as an aeronautical engineer. And I was, uh, you know, in the engineering world. Then, as I was like trying to learn, you know, what was happening inside of my body, I got very interested in human biology. So I started learning biology. I then applied to PhD programs. And then I went to UC Berkeley, to study for five years. And I learned nutritional biochemistry, Mm. which is basically like super nerd nutrition, right? While I was there, the professor that I was working under gave me an opportunity to investigate, like do a deep, 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 deep dive into insulin resistance. And so there it was my opportunity to basically learn everything there was to learn about what causes insulin resistance, what reverses insulin resistance, how do you do it using food how do you do it using fasting how do you do it using exercise and then try and turn that into useful information which we could then disseminate to the world you know via research mm-hmm. so there's a significant there's a, there's there's an unbelievable amount of research in the world of diabetes there really is i mean i could spend every single day of my life reading nothing but diabetes papers and i would not be able to read them all before I die. There's there's that much. And there's a lot of information here about insulin resistance like I was saying earlier. There's literally 100 years since the 1920s. There's 100 years of scientific information that clearly describes the mechanisms at play that happen when you're eating a diet that contains a lot of sugar or refined sugar, a lot of carbohydrate that comes from whole sources, a lot of dietary fat, what happens when you eat a lot of meat, what happens when you eat a lot of protein. And every single one of these sort of like, you know, different dietary regimens has been described and its resultant effect on glucose metabolism has been described. So my agenda, Robbie, blatantly obvious here. My agenda is not to like come at this from like an animal rights perspective or an environmental perspective or to like coerce anybody into eating a plant-based diet. Not at all. I educate people through science. That's my goal. That's my currency. And like, I've, trust me when I say I've read, you know, literally like thousands of hours worth of papers and thousands of papers. And my goal is to try and translate complex scientific information to, you know, somebody who doesn't have a biology degree and get them to understand the science. And once they understand the science, it's up to you. You can do whatever you want. You want to eat a plant-based diet? Go for it. You don't want to, don't go for it. But my goal is to just try and make that information accessible. And if you like it, cool. If you don't, then that's totally cool too.
1: Yeah. I'm glad you said that. And and I think it's, it's inspiring that you've taken something that was a pretty big negative in your life and then, and took the time to not only get better yourself, to go educate yourself on the very subject to now help so many other people do the same. And you actually went and got a degree in this. You actually went and did the research. You've studied all these papers and I can just tell this something that this is something that you're passionate about. So let's get into it. Let's unpack the science and try to put it in layman's terms as much as we can. So what is insulin resistance? Like, What what does that mean? How does it relate to diabetes? How does it relate to being pre-diabetic? We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, wanted to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I cannot tell you how much better I feel, how much better I function and work when I take this product. It goes into my daily smoothie along with various other superfoods every single day. And ever since I started taking it, I got to say that I have noticed improvements in my digestion. I've noticed improvements in my energy and even in my immune system. But like many of you, I am on the go so much between interviews, personal training clients and the podcast that I want to maximize my health in the most efficient way. This is where Athletic Greens helps me tremendously. It is a life-changing, life-changing superfood powder, and each serving contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet and keep you feeling your best. Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system with everything going on in the world right now. So they are offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D, which many people are deficient in, yet is crucial for immune system support. And they are also giving away five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. So you'll basically never have to buy vitamin D again. So simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Doug and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, perfect. So let's do the story of insulin resistance here because it can be confusing and there's a lot of different versions of this story there's a lot of different like people, you know, saying no, 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 insulin resistance is this and not this, but from all the reading I've done and from all the uh, investigation I've done and from my entire, you know, 5 years worth of, you know, thesis work, I am very confident that without question insulin resistance is caused by the consumption of excess dietary fat. Mm. And, and it's that fat that's stored in tissues that are not designed to store fat in large quantities. Okay. Now a lot of people would be like, hold on, hold on, Cyrus, what the heck are you talking about? Right. Insulin resistance is not caused by dietary fat. Insulin resistance is caused by sugar or insulin resistance is caused by insulin. Right. And so that's sort of where the, the, the beginning of the controversy starts. But let's, let's do it from the perspective of fat because, again, going back to the 1930s, if you look at the, inf- this, the information, this has been known for a long time, okay? So here's what happens. When you eat a diet that's contain- that contains a significant amount of fat, okay, that fat usually comes from either red meat, white meat, dairy products, eggs, processed meat, or vegetable oils, okay? So when you're consuming significant quantities of these foods on a daily basis, what ends up happening is that the the fat that's inside of your food is actually locked up in a form called triglyceride. Triglyceride is basically just a fancy way of describing three fatty acid molecules that are attached to this thing called glycerol. So it's a glycerol backbone plus one, two, three fatty acid molecules. So you have this triglyceride, and that's the storage form in animals. It's a storage form in plants. It's a storage form in humans. You eat fat-rich foods. The fat is locked up in a triglyceride molecule. It goes into your mouth travels down your esophagus, it gets inside of your stomach. Once it's in your stomach, it basically starts to get acted upon by a collection of enzymes that's there to sort of like degrade it and kind of unfold it and and begin to unpack it. It gets inside of your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, you have a whole collection of enzymes, digestive enzymes, that are made by the walls of your small intestine, by your liver, and by your pancreas. And each one of these organs is basically manufacturing these, these enzymes and they're throwing it into your small intestine. And inside your small intestine is where this triglyceride basically gets ripped apart. So the glycerol backbone gets separated from the three fatty acid molecules. These three fatty acid molecules are then absorbed through the walls of your small intestine, and then they're transported into these little spaceships. Okay, these little spaceships are known as chylomicrons. Okay, so for those of you who are listening, you know don't worry, it's not going to be on the test here. But the idea (laughs) is that there's there's trillions of chylomicron particles that are floating in your blood at all times. And the, the purpose of a chylomicron is to accept fatty acids when they are present from your small intestine and then go deliver those fatty acids to tissues. Go give it to your adipose tissue. Go give it to your muscle. Go give it to your liver. Go give it to your sexual organs. Go give it to your thyroid gland. Go give it to your kidney. And so these chylomicron particles are in circulation and they basically are like, okay, cool, Doug just ate an avocado. Doug just ate some red meat. So these fatty acid molecules end up coming into these chylomicron particles and temporarily there's a significant amount of cargo for them to transport. So they begin this transport process and they start delivering it to tissues. and, And the primary target of these chylomicron particles is your adipose tissue or your fat tissue. So in an ideal world, If I had to design, redesign human beings or redesign mammals, what I would do is make it so that those fatty acid molecules go into the chylomicron particles. The chylomicron particles have one destination, literally one destination, and that is your fat tissue. And they would go straight into your fat tissue. The chylomicrons would knock on the door be like, hey, fat tissue, here's some fatty acids. The fat tissue would be like, cool, sounds like a plan. Give it to me. They would take it up, and then the chylomicron particles would be like, cool, my job here is done. The problem is that these chylomicron particles deliver fat to your adipose tissue, which is a good thing because that's where fat is supposed to be stored for long periods of time. But then in addition to that, they also deliver fatty acids to your liver and they also deliver fatty acids to your muscle. And when there is an excess quantity of fatty acids in your diet to begin with, then the spillover into your liver and muscle goes up and up and up over the course of time. Now, your liver and muscle are designed to store small amounts of fatty acids, not large. From a biological perspective, they have a very small capacity to uptake and store or uptake and oxidize fatty acids. And when you overwhelm that with a high-fat diet, then within a short period of time, you force your liver and you force your muscle into uptaking and storing large quantities of fatty acids, which is not their biological design. And so as a result of that, as soon as they start to uptake too much fatty acids, then all of a sudden they go into this mode where they're like, oh no, there's too much stuff coming inside of me. There's too much energy inside of these tissues. So they have to block more energy from coming in. And the simplest way for any cell, any tissue inside of your body to block energy from coming inside is to block the action of insulin. Because insulin is your body's primary anabolic hormone. Okay, what that means is that insulin is responsible for more fuel storage, more fuel uptake, and more growth than any other hormone in your body. There is no other hormone that is nearly as powerful at insul- as insulin at fuel storage and growth. So if you're trying to block fuel storage, then what you're going to do is you're going to basically say, okay, let's not respond to insulin the next time insulin comes around. Okay, let's try and wage war against insulin. So what that means is that these tissues go into a self-protective mechanism where they're like, all right, we're going to create this thing called insulin resistance. We're going to become resistant to insulin. We're going to block insulin. We're going to reject insulin. So what that means is that you eat a high fat diet, you store fatty acids inside of your liver and muscle in excess of what they're supposed to do. And then the next time you go and you eat something that's carbohydrate rich, like a banana, literally one banana, or maybe a bowl of quinoa or some, some beans or something like that the glucose from those carbohydrate molecules is circulating in your blood and the glucose is trying to get inside of your liver and trying to get inside of your muscle. So the glucose can't get in for free. Insulin comes and knocks on the door goes, knock, knock. Hey, liver. Hey, muscle. I got some glucose in the, in the blood. Do you want to take it up? Under normal circumstances, your liver and muscle would be like, sure, give it to me. I'll take it. Sounds like a plan. But in this situation, because you're dealing with insulin resistance, because both of those tissues have now created insulin resistance as a self-protective mechanism, Insulin knocks on the door, goes, hey, there's glucose in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And both of those tissues respond by saying, nope, not going to take it up right now.
1: So what I'm hearing Can't you say it. is it's a much more encompassing f- thing than just you just eat carbs and then the carbs get digested into glucose and then glucose gets digested or, tra- or gets converted to glycogen and then glycogen goes into the bloodstream and the muscles and then unused glucose glycogen gets converted to fat. Because that's the old adage, right? Of what is traditionally taught. So what am I correct?
0: Yeah. So that is exactly what, what the sort of, uh, I'll call it like the functional medicine world likes to, to relate that that is the story of insulin resistance, right? And they neglect the contribution that fatty acids, specifically saturated fatty acids has to insulin resistance. And that is a huge misnomer. It is a huge, if you neglect the contribution of saturated fatty acids to insulin resistance, then you are doing, you know, you're misrepresenting mammalian biology, just flat out, period right. of story, because it's such a big deal.
1: Right. And I think for people to better understand this, I think people need to look at it as a more wholesome approach. And yes, I'm sure like that exact process that I just described definitely plays a role and a part in all of this. But I think what I'm hearing you say is there's a lot more to that. I think the standard American diet has probably crippled people. Yes. In many ways, if you think about what the typical person eats, it's a lot of pizza, a lot of processed foods, a lot of frozen meals, a lot of, you know, processed meats, a lot of processed cereals, like all these things that have preservatives in them. And as a result, it's clogging up all these different pathways that you were alluding to before, and they're not able to properly manage the use of carbohydrates. Exactly, And then – as a result, creating more insulin resistance, because I think, like you said, I think the, the biggest thing that people need to be aware of is how do you become insulin resistant? So for the person who's listening to this, that might not have diabetes, but might want to educate maybe their kids, or maybe they want to better themselves. Like, how do I become insulin resistant? And I think the easiest way it seems is to eat a diet that's full of processed meat, process fats, process oils, process and process anything. And if you could just start there, wouldn't you say that's a a big first step for most people if you just eliminated processed food?
0: Isn't yeah, right? I mean, eliminating processed food would be would be a massive step in the right direction. Because when you eliminate processed food, let's be clear about this, they're sort of like processed animal-based foods. And then there's sort of processed plant-based foods. If right. we kind of create those two categories, yeah. The processed animal-based foods, we're talking about basically processed meats, meats that have been, they have to basically go through a manufacturing process in order to, you know, become more edible. So they're either smoked or they're cured and, or they're, they're processed into, you know, ham and sorry, into sausages, into bacon, you know, they've gone through a manufacturing process. These types of foods are rampant with nitrate compounds. And these nitrate compounds can cause extensive damage to your cardiovascular system. And they can definitely increase your, your level of insulin resistance. If you're looking at processed plant-based foods, these are things like cookies, crackers, chips, pastas, sodas, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages. A lot of these products are carbohydrate dominant. They have a lot of refined carbohydrates in them. But then in addition to them, They also have these things called hydrogenated vegetable oils. Hydrogenated vegetable oils are absolute napalm when it comes to your vasculature. They cause atherosclerosis. They can increase your LDL cholesterol, and they can set the stage for insulin resistance in your liver and muscle as well. So you're absolutely right. If you can minimize or eliminate processed foods, you're going to do yourself a huge favor. But then in addition, step two, what I would do is I would also take a real real good look at the total quantity of saturated fat that's coming into your mouth and find a way to reduce your saturated fat intake. You can't eliminate it, it's impossible, but reduce it. Get it down to a, you know, get your total fat consumption down to less than 15% of your total calories. And when you do that, then your saturated fat content will come down dramatically as well. That right there is going to put you it's going to make you more insulin sensitive. It's going to restore the glucose machinery inside of your liver. It's going to restore the glucose machinery inside of your muscle. And when you can restore the glucose machinery, the carbohydrate machinery inside of both of those tissues, and those two tissues become more responsive to insulin, then that right there is going to have a huge impact on your blood glucose values. And it's going to lower your chronic disease risk into the future.
1: Now, does this, the same go for people who are, who are healthy, active, and maybe their, their blood sugar levels, their A1C is, is very good. I mean, could they tolerate more healthy fats, things like avocados, or even a little bit of, you know, coconut oil or wild
0: salmon and stuff like that? Yes, absolutely. So people who are athletic, actually, there's this thing called the athlete's paradox, which is really interesting. So the athlete's paradox basically is a body of research that has identified that athletes have an ability to store saturated fat in their muscle tissue without causing insulin resistance, mm. and it's really fascinating because if you look at it just from an anatomical perspective, and you you identify the amount of triglyceride that's stored inside of a stored inside of the muscle cell of athletes who do eat a high fat diet, what you'll find is that. Their muscle cells are less insulin resistant than somebody who's not active. And what this body of research has uncovered is that the, because the muscle tissue in athletes tends to be used frequently and it's forced to contract and elongate and contract and elongate, that lipid droplet inside of the muscle tissue is actually a temporary fuel depot and so if you're eating a high fat diet you can basically put fuel into that fuel depot and then you will go oxidize that fuel when you go and you know perform the next bout of exercise and so rather than it becoming this like stagnant problematic inflammatory part of the mus- of the cell it actually is a rapidly depleted fuel source that's actually beneficial to athletes especially endurance athletes and as a result of that it doesn't it's not as problematic so long winded way of me saying, if you're athletic, you gain the ability to eat a little bit more fat in your diet, for sure, but even then we got to be very particular because I'm not suggesting that athletes go eat high fat diets. I'm still that's suggesting right. that an athlete go from fifteen percent of total fat in their diet to maybe maybe twenty or twenty five percent but that's it right. beyond that you're you know you could be treading into chronic disease territory
1: yeah, and I think it's important to remember the importance of specificity and bio-individuality when For it comes sure. to this stuff, because, you know, you could have somebody who's listening to this, that maybe they're pre-diabetic or they have type two diabetes and their main goal is just to get their blood sugar levels regulated, right. And get that under control first. And like you're saying, get you were saying, the low hanging fruit is to first eliminate processed foods and then take a hard look at how much fat you're eating in your diet. And then start there and then monitor and see how things go. Absolutely. And then if you're somebody who's listening to this and you're an athlete or you're somebody who's highly active, we know the benefits of exercise resistance training when it comes to reducing the risk of, of diabetes, being able to better manage your blood sugar levels, being able to better manage insulin. And, and so for those listening who are in that bucket to just know that when you do exercise, you do need carbohydrates to recover. Because I think a prime example of that is in your story where you were saying you were highly active, you were playing sports, you were working out, and you were eating a high fat diet. And then what happened is I think probably I think in part because you weren't eating enough carbs to to recover, you were cramping, you just didn't feel like you were recovering in a manner that was conducive to longevity it was that was conducive to having long-term health and wellness either and so the other thing i want to kind of get into as well is is when people are hearing this and they're like okay so does this mean that i just have to eat only fruits and vegetables and that's it like when you say go mostly plant-based, what does that look like? And then the other thing I want you to get into as well is the glycemic index. I think you the glycemic go. index has been a measure or an, in, an index, if you will, that people use to see if there a carbohydrate go. is healthy or not for you.
0: That's exactly right. Okay, perfect. So the first question was, what types of carbohydrate are we talking about? How do you migrate towards a plant-based diet? Is that right?
1: Yeah. So if somebody's listening to this and say they're pre-diabetic or they have type 2 diabetes or maybe their their kid does or a loved one. Okay, I've eliminated the fat, or I've addressed the processed foods. I've, I've looked at my fat content. So, what do
0: I replace all that with? Yeah, good call. Okay, so here's what you replace it with. There, there's basically think of there being as four categories of foods, which in my recommendation and our recommendation is should be the sort of like central focus of your of, of an insulin sensitive diet. Number one, fruits of all shapes and colors and sizes. Number two. Starchy vegetables, and these are vegetables that grow on the ground, like potatoes and yams and turnips and parsnips and rutabaga and sweet potatoes. Okay, the the third one is legumes, which are beans, peas, and lentils. And the fourth one is whole grains. Okay, whole grains like quinoa and uh, amaranth and farro. Okay, not like white rice per se. Okay, so vegetable. I'm sorry, fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, whole grains. All
1: right, I, want to, you- want to pa- I want to pause right there because I think people listening to this right now will be like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. How come no non starchy vegetables? And I'm trying to manage the amount of sugar that's coming into my body. Right. Off the bat, you're recommending fruit, which tends to be high in sugar and has less fiber in many cases than vegetables. You're recommending starchy vegetables, which have carbohydrates and some sugar and that sort of thing, and probably less fiber in many cases than non-starchy vegetables, legumes, which are high in carbohydrates, and whole grains, which are high in carbohydrates. Correct. So
0: wh- why do you start there versus the non-starchy vegetables? It's a great question. So the reason we start there is because there's another misnomer in the world of you know diet and nutrition. The misnomer is that carbohydrates are problematic. Carbohydrates are bad for you. You hear this all over the place. Okay, but here's where the the logic flaw happens. Carbohydrates are long chains of monosaccharide units. These monosaccharide units go by the name of glucose and fructose and galactose, and so on. And they end in the word. They end in the suffix "ose." Okay, these. Individual units are also referred to as, quote unquote, sugar. So if you open a biology textbook and you look at it, they'll sometimes use the word monosaccharide and sometimes they use the word sugar. They're kind of interchangeable terms. Now, if you take glucose and attach it to fructose, then you create something called sucrose. And sucrose is white table sugar. And every human being on the planet at this point should probably know or does know that sucrose is bad for you it's inflammatory it'll degrade your teeth it'll cause problems to your brain it you know your liver hates it your vasculature hates it your sexual organs hate it you name it right so white table sugar is referred to as sugar mm-hmm. but yet the building blocks of carbohydrates are also referred to as sugar so you're using the same word to describe two fundamentally different two different products okay White table sugar is extremely problematic and nobody is recommending you eat more like the white table sugar. Not me, not people in the paleo community, not people in the, in the ketogenic community, not you, nobody, okay? <laughs> yeah. right? So sugar, yes, we want, we want to get rid of white table sugar and things like high fructose corn syrup, which are, again, these are refined sugars or refined carbohydrates, okay? But whole carbohydrates that come from fruits and starchy vegetables and legumes and whole grains do not act the same way as sucrose. Do not act the same way as refined carbohydrates. What happens is that when you eat whole carbohydrates in their whole form, these carbohydrates are protected by a whole collection of other macronutrients and micronutrients. The other macronutrients are fat and protein. And then the micronutrients are vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. So every time you're eating something that's a whole carbohydrate, again, a fruit, a starchy vegetable, a legume, or a whole grain, what ends up happening is that you have a whole collection. You have a three-dimensional matrix of macro and micronutrients, which is going into your mouth. And when that matrix goes inside of your digestive system, it takes a lot of time and a lot of processing power to be able to fully open up this package and separate out the carbohydrate from the non-carbohydrate, the vitamins from the minerals, from the antioxidants, and you name it. And then finally, when these digestive enzymes get access to the carbohydrate molecule, they still have to further process it by cutting it into individual monosaccharides. And then they take those monosaccharides up, put them into the blood, and then they go transport them and they do something with them. right? So point being here is that a whole carbohydrate does not function like a refined carbohydrate. They're fundamentally different species altogether but yet we use the same word to describe both of them. We use the word sugar, mm. right? And people will go, oh, okay, don't eat, don't eat a banana because a banana's got a lot of sugar in it, right? Eh, logic flaw. Bananas contain carbohydrate in their whole form. When that carbohydrate breaks down, it breaks down into glucose and fructose primarily. Those are the two primary monosaccharides. Glucose is a fuel, fructose is a fuel, and that's a good thing. But when you're eating table sugar, you're getting the glucose and the fructose, and it's a refined version of, it's a refined product that has no protein, no fat, zero vitamins, zero minerals, zero fiber, zero water, zero antioxidants, and zero phytochemicals. So you cannot compare a refined carbohydrate to a whole carbohydrate because they're fundamentally different species and we got to stop using the word sugar to describe both of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, because
1: I don't think we've gotten to the place we are today because of fruit. Like I don't think the there were at this epidemic of diabetes and obesity and people being completely unhealthy and all the lifestyle diseases because of people eating too much fruit it, or too many vegetables or too met ma- too many healthy forms of carbohydrates, right? I think you and I re- before we recorded, we talked about Enemies, we talked about factory farming, we talked about processed foods, we talked about sugar, we talked about processed dairy, cheese like all these things that are destroying people, right? And that we, as a community in the health and wellness space, need to come and find some common ground so that we can just say, Hey, listen, like these, this is the real issue here the real issue that is depleting people of being healthy, being happy and being less stressed are these things. And let's just encourage people to start there, which is why I'm really glad that you said that a great first step for people, if they're trying to reverse their reverse insulin resistance is to just look at that in itself is the processed foods they're eating in their diets. Where's their food coming from? Is it coming from a whole source
0: or is it coming in a box or a bag? Uh Uh-huh. There's, there's no question about it. So, I mean, changing your diet can be a huge, huge, huge overhaul. It can be a huge process. It's a physical process. It's a mental process. It's an emotional process, and it's a logistical process at the same time. Right. And so, you know, if, if you're at a point where you're saying, okay, like I I believe this story, right. I I would like to become healthier. I would like to lose weight. I'd like to become more insulin sensitive. I'd like to lower my risk for pre-diabetes and type two diabetes. I'd like to be able to control my blood glucose better, right? There's a thousand changes that you can make to get to that point, right? Mm -hmm. You could change your exercise regimens. You could change your fasting regimens. You could change how much stress is in your life. You could change your sleeping patterns, your alcohol consumption, your smoking patterns, blah, 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 blah. There's a thousand things that you could change, right? But you do a really good job here of focusing on one change that will make a large difference, and that one change is to minimize or eliminate processed foods that come from both the animal world and the plant world. Everyone can agree on that, period, end of story. That's gonna make a big difference. Number two, try and find a way to eat more, to eat less saturated fat, eat less total fat. Okay? Those are two changes that are gonna have a profound effect on your overall health. Mm -hmm. And if you can just focus on those two and replace those fat rich foods with the whole carbohydrates that I just described, fruits, Starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains. That right there is going to translate to exceptional long term health. Right. And then once you've made that change, and, and take your time making that change, it could take you three months, six months, a year. Personally, I don't care how long it takes you because I'm not the food police. All I care is that you start to make these changes in your life. And, you know, let's say it takes you six months to make this full change. I'll give you a giant high five for that. That's awesome. Right. At that point, when you found a way to make a sustainable change, then you can start to put in the more complex things about fasting, about changing your exercise patterns, about changing your alcohol consumption, your sleeping patterns, your stress levels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this can be an evolution that can take you the next 20 years. I'm totally cool with it, but make the big changes up front, and those big changes are going to pay off in the long term. Mm
1: -hmm. So you you talked about fruit, and then you talked about – the The starchy vegetables you talked about legumes, you talked about whole grains would you say that their the, their nutrient properties are very similar to that in fruit, and that in the same context you're saying that fruit shouldn't be compared to simple sugar refined sugar that legumes whole grains and not and starchy vegetables shouldn't be
0: compared to simple sugar refined sugar as well absolutely yeah there's no question about it so you see this narrative all over the place on the internet. They say don't eat bananas, don't eat mangoes, don't eat peaches. Those are all bad for you. They'll just metabolize the into sugar. And we just went into detail about why that's a fallacy. Right. Okay. So let it be said that like fruit does not equal sugar. Fruit is an actual is, is a whole complex version of carbohydrate, which translates to exceptional health because of all the other macro and micronutrients that come along for the ride. Okay. The same argument holds true for starchy vegetables. If you've heard this idea, that you shouldn't eat potatoes because potatoes will make you fat and that potatoes are going to spike your blood sugar and they're going to cause an excess insulin production. Again, logic flaw. Potatoes are a three-dimensional macro and micronutrient matrix. They function very similarly to fruits. They have a different collection of carbohydrate molecules in them. And as a result of that, they're going to drip feed glucose into your blood over a longer time span because they have a completely, they have a different, you know, molecular makeup to their carbohydrates and that's okay. So fruits might just become metabolized quicker. You know, you eat a mango and over the course of the next two hours, that mango is going to provide a significant amount of energy. But when you eat a potato, that potato, the energy from that potato could last three hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours and beyond. And that's just because they have a different molecular makeup. But the same principle still holds, which is that, it's not sugar. It's not a refined product. You shouldn't be concerned about it spiking your blood glucose. You shouldn't be concerned about it al- elevating your cholesterol. These are very micronutrient-dense foods, nutrient-dense foods, which should become the cornerstone of your you know, entire eating pattern.
1: And you're not talking about French fries. You're talking about just straight potatoes. I mean, I wish I was talking about French <laughs> fries, let me tell you, because
0: <laughs> I would eat those every day. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs>
1: So and then I think obviously it and from what I know and you can correct me if I'm wrong the same nutritional uh, properties hold true for whole grains and legumes as far as starchy vegetables. I think yes. fruit uh, while fr- while fruit is very similar I think you hit on the different different point with fruit because that's probably the one I would say that gets the most ba- the biggest bad rap between that and and whole grains I think. I think most people now have come around to know that eating high quality potatoes, sweet potatoes, yams, that sort of thing. They know that they're healthy for you, but I think there's the, still the whole grain car, too many carbs in rice or too many carbs in oatmeal or quinoa or lentils or black beans. And people shy away from that. And I think I what people aren't looking at is the amount of dietary fiber that is there in these foods as well. Black beans have tons of fiber, lentils have tons of fiber, whole grains have fiber. And there's a lot there that, that there's a lot there that needs to be said because it's not, it's not the same as just refined carbohydrates. Like when you're eating dietary fiber, it slows the absorption of the carbohydrates. It helps you become less insulin resistant, right?
0: Absolutely. So yeah, I think part of the the marketing surrounding carbs has become, like we were talking about, it's become a little bit confusing. And usually, when people say things like, I'm going to eat a low carb diet, or like carbs are bad for me, what most people picture in their head as soon as they say the word carb is bread, right? They say, Oh, okay, I'm going to eat a low carb diet. And really, what they're trying to say is, I'm going to eat less refined carbohydrates, right? Less breads, less crackers, less chips, less sodas, right? These are these are the types of carbohydrate that I think people are insinuating they're they're suggesting when they talk about eating a low carbohydrate diet. But within within this this umbrella of carb, they also unfortunately place whole grains. They place quinoa. They place all versions of rice, all colors, whether it's brown rice, red rice, black rice, purple rice, green rice, you name it. They put uh farro, they put amaranth. they put buckwheat into this category, right? But if you really look at the research, what you'll find out is that the refined carbohydrates, the white breads, the iron kid breads, the donuts, the cookies, the crackers, the chips, like That stuff, just like throw that stuff in the trash can. Like that stuff was never good. It tastes good, but it increases your chronic disease risk. It increases your cholesterol. It increases your risk for diabetes. It increases your risk for hypertension and beyond. But then when you're eating the whole carbohydrates, the whole grains, the whole grains actually decrease your risk for all those chronic metabolic diseases. They decrease your LDL cholesterol. They decrease your hypertensive risk. They decrease your risk for diabetes they increase your insulin sensitivity, they fundamentally change the structure of your microbiome for the good. And as a result of that, you end up with a whole bunch of positive metabolic benefits. So again, we can't talk about all carbs as being equal. They're not right. The whole carbohydrates that come from fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains have to be put into one bucket the refined carbohydrates that come from cookies, crackers, chips, pastas, bread, sodas, you name it, have to be put into another bucket. And if you literally just separate the two of those buckets and you're constantly viewing carbohydrate rich foods from this perspective, then that's going to do a lot for your, for your overall health in the future.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I think you, you did a nice job of kind of tying that all together. So people can understand the difference between the two forms of carbohydrates and and kind of like, so from my understanding, the reason why you don't include non starchy vegetables in the beginning is it to help them
0: get used to operating more on carbohydrates? Yeah. So, okay, I never answered that question earlier. Why do I not talk about non starchy vegetables? Well, the funny thing is that I love non starchy vegetables. Just for for clarity, non starchy vegetables are things like celery and broccoli and cauliflower. And I'm going to even put leafy green vegetables into this category. So these are all. Vegetables that don't contain starch, Mm. right? Cucumbers. Help me out here. What do we got? Like, we got asparagus, kale. I'll even put tomatoes in that category, even though tomatoes are technically a fruit. But anyway, point being is that culinary vegetables that don't contain starch. Okay. Right. So those are all exceptionally healthy for you. And I actually do in our in our book Mastering Diabetes, we talk about the value of those non-starchy vegetables, and we talk about eating a lot of them. Don't question the reason why I don't put them as the forefront in people's minds is because they don't have very many calories. And when people transition to a plant-based diet, if they become calorie deficient right off the bat, and they're not eating a significant number of calories to replace the high fat foods that that they're eliminating, then they end up feeling hungry all the time. They end up feeling like, oh, I'm malnourished. This thing isn't working for me. I have very low energy. And then they go and they eat a hamburger and they're like, boom, now I feel like I have a lot of energy. I think the hamburger was the answer, right? So the truth is that non-starchy vegetables are absolutely, there's a time and a place for them, no question. But I want you to focus on those four groups, fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, and whole grains first. Just focus on those, get a lot of calories from those foods, and then put in the non-starchy vegetables in addition to those foods. And as a result of doing that, you're going to have both the calories plus the exceptional nutrient value of the non-starchy vegetables. And it's a slam dunk. Mm.
1: Well, it's kind of like the flip side in in my experience, when I've eaten grass-fed beef, higher quality poultry, fish, stuff like that. And then ate just non-starchy vegetables. And I cut out the carbs and I didn't eat the quote unquote, the healthy fat enough healthy fats. I would experience the same thing. I'd be Kind of lethargic, lack of energy because I wasn't eating enough calories. And so I want to pivot and ask a quick question. In the same context that you said that refined carbohydrates and things like fruit, legumes, whole grains, and starchy vegetables can't be the same, can the same also be true for processed fats? cheese and ice cream and processed meat and that sort of thing and then in comparison to coconut oil, avocado, nuts, seeds, like how does that how does that compare? Does does the body process all fat in the same or is it different based on the quality of fat that you're
0: eating? You know, the quality of fat is is paramount, is absolutely massive. So if you choose to put some fat-rich foods into your mouth, by all means go for it. It's no big deal. Again, the number one goal is to try and keep your fat content In my professional opinion, less than 15% of your total calories, somewhere between 10 and 15%, and you'd be doing a slam dunk at that point. If you choose to eat fat-rich foods, go for the fat-rich foods that happen to have a lot of nutrients to come along with them, okay? Again, micronutrients are very important. Micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals, okay? So ask yourself, if you eat ice cream that happens to be (laughs) fat-rich, is there a lot of vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals? Not really okay? If you're eating uh, bacon, does it come with a lot of vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals? Not really, okay? If you're going to eat an avocado, that's going to be much higher on the micronutrient scale. How about some nuts and seeds? Way higher on the micronutrient scale. Coconut, way higher on the micronutrient scale, okay? So, opt for foods that have a high micronutrient density, always, with every bite of food, period, end of story. And if you can do that, then that could be a really good barometer, if you will. It could be a good compass for really understanding like what's a smart decision versus what's an illogical decision that's actually going to lead to potentially more chronic disease down the road. Mm-hmm.
1: I like that. I like how you said that because I think it comes down to quality. I think we there's a lot of people out there that just they count calories or they they do macros and Obviously I think calories in calories out is important I think the science doesn't lie there but I don't think it means that just because you're eating 1500 calories of crap that you're okay and you're going to be healthy Correct. right like I think there needs to be like that needs to be double clicked and said okay like let's look at that 1500 and what are you eating and how can we replace it with things that are good for longevity managing your blood sugar levels that will decrease your risk of cancer lifestyle diseases that sort of thing you nailed it. Absolutely right? nailed it. And so I want to kind of get into now, if if we can, into type 2 diabetes, because I think we we talked about being pre-diabetic. We talked about blood sugar. We talked about insulin resistance. We talked about food. But as I stated at the beginning of our conversation, type 2 diabetes is very common in today's society. So could you maybe give like a, a brief context on what it is? And then if somebody or a loved one has it some simple steps they could take to reverse it in a way that's going to work for them long-term? For sure. Is this is the same rule apply for somebody who is insulin resistant or when you have type two diabetes, is it a whole nother ball game? Yeah, good question. So
0: think of uh, type two diabetes as basically being it's, it's all a spectrum. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the spectrum starts like this on, on one hand of the spectrum on the, on the left hand side, you have non-diabetic. As you move towards the right, you go from non diabetic into pre diabetes. As you move from, as you continue moving to the right, you go from pre diabetes to type 2 diabetes. Okay. Now, another way to visualize this is to literally just think of the same spectrum as basically being a spectrum of insulin resistance. Non diabetic tends to have a very low amount of insulin resistance in your liver and muscle. And as you move to the right into the pre-diabetes category, you're talking about more insulin resistance. And then when you get to type two diabetes, you're talking about even more insulin resistance. Okay. So the two spectrums are kind of like one in the same. And we're just basically looking at the degree of insulin resistance that has accumulated over the course of time. right. So there's this idea that type two diabetes is not reversible. Once you become type two diabetic, that's it. You're going to have that for life. And then there's another idea that type 2 diabetes is a genetic condition and that you have type 2 diabetes. You diagnosed with type 2 diabetes because your mom had it or your brother had it or your sister had it or your uncle had it, your grandfather, your grandmother, somewhere. It's in your family. And that because they had it, you had a genetic predisposition towards it. And that's the reason why you got it. Okay. So let's, let's go into both of them. Number one, Type 2 diabetes is a reversible condition. Type 2 diabetes is a reversible condition in, there's no way to know the actual number, but somewhere north of 80% of all cases. Okay, 80% of the time or more, type 2 diabetes is a reversible condition. And the reason for that is because type 2 diabetes, like I said earlier, is just basically the expression of advanced insulin resistance. And if you take the steps to reverse insulin resistance through your diet and through your exercise patterns, which we haven't even really touched on, but let's just throw that into the mix. If you, if you really put a strong focus on that, you can regain insulin sensitivity quickly. And as a result of that, you start to move back down the spectrum towards the left-hand side. So you go from being non-diabetic to pre-diabetic to type two, and then if you become insulin sensitive, you go from type two back to prediabetes and then from prediabetes back to non-diabetic. And again, that happens in 80 plus percent of all people. Okay? The 20 percent of people-ish that can't reverse type two diabetes actually have a insulin production problem inside of their pancreas. In other words, over the course of time, their pancreas has effectively burned out and manufactured too much insulin. And as a result of that, it's a non-recoverable state where their pancreas just can't keep up and they will be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and they will have it for the rest of their life, Mm. okay? So that's number one. Number two, when it comes to this idea that type 2 diabetes is a genetic condition, type 2 diabetes does have some genetic precursors to it. In other words, there are genes that scientists have identified that can increase your risk for type 2 diabetes. But your lifestyle, in other words, the food that you put into your mouth your exercise patterns, whether you're a smoker, whether you're a drinker, whether you have a high stress lifestyle, these things will absolutely trump any kind of genetic predisposition that you may have. So you could be living with a grandfather and a grandmother and a mother and a father who have type two diabetes. If you have the right lifestyle in place, your lifestyle completely negates anything that happened in any of your lineage before you. Okay. So Eating an insulin sensitive diet, exactly the way that we're describing, is going to be way more important than the genetic predisposition that you may have. And as a result of that, you can have plenty of diabetes amongst all of your family members and their family members and their family members, and you could never show a single manifestation of that. Your glucose may never get elevated, and your insulin values may never get elevated, and your A1C may never get elevated because you ate a diet that maintained insulin sensitivity over the course of your entire life.
1: Yeah. I think you made some, some really good points. And I definitely like, as for like the last like segment of our conversation, I want to go into non-food related things that people can do to help with insulin resistance and diabetes, things like exercise, fasting, stress management, obviously not smoking, limiting drinking, that sort of thing. But I think the important thing for people to remember is that, I think when people get defined by an illness or their identity is wrapped up in a disease like diabetes right. or addiction or anything else and they feel like it cripples them. And I'm not saying that these don't have biological components. We there's a lot of research out there, out there, obviously, with addiction and what it does to the brain and biology and genetics. And I'm not negating that. What I'm saying though is if you take the approach and say in that you're going to be stuck in that. Frame of mind or that position or that level of health forever, then you feel hopeless and powerless. So, what do you do? You're like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to eat more donuts. I'm going to eat pizza. I'm going to eat this. I'm going to eat that. I'm going to do more of this, do more of that. And I'm not going to take any action to swing the pendulum the other way to get myself in a place where I'm feeling better about my health and I'm feeling better about where I'm going. So, I think it's important for people to remember that if you do have type 2 diabetes, that there's a really good chance that you can reverse it through lifestyle choices and your behaviors and taking ownership of your life. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be challenging. It's going to suck to go from a place of where you're eating ice cream and processed junk and not moving your body and smoking and doing all these things that are destroying your health. It's going to suck to transition into taking that step and improving your health. It's going to be hard, I can guarantee you that The longer you do it and the more you do it, the better you're going to feel. You're going to start to create momentum. You're going to start to look back and be like, wow, I've gone a week without skipping the gym or I've gone a week without eating ice cream or whatever it is. And then you're going to feel more confident and you're going to feel empowered and be like, you know what? I got this. And then you're going to start to make changes in other areas of your life, which we're going to get into now because I I have to imagine, and I haven't read the science on this, but I have to imagine that stress management plays a huge role in insulin resistance, massive diabetes. So can you Mm -hmm. talk about that for a minute?
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think you're hitting it on the head too, because this conversation about insulin resistance and diabetes is often focused on the dietary changes that somebody can make. And those are important. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Right. But in addition to the dietary changes, there's a whole collection of other things that are that are significant contributors to living a you know optimal lifestyle for the long term. So stress when you are living a high stress lifestyle there's a, th- a th- many different biochemical alterations that happen inside of your brain inside of your liver inside of your kidney inside of your adrenal gland you name it right. You've probably heard the term adrenal fatigue. People use this term all the time mm-hmm. to describe living in a fight or flight mechanism for you know many hours a day, right? So what what you'll hear people say is they say okay well My doctor diagnosed me with adrenal fatigue and therefore I have to eat a certain way in order to like overcome that adrenal fatigue, right? And what they're basically trying to communicate is that if when you're living in a high stress lifestyle, what that means is that the, your adrenal, your adrenal gland is being forced to work harder than it's supposed to. Okay. So there's a part of your adrenal gland called your adrenal cortex. Your adrenal cortex is what secretes adrenaline. Okay. Now adrenaline has a very specific purpose in your body. Adrenaline is designed to be a signaling molecule that will get you into action immediately. Right? People always use the okay. Well, I'm sitting here and I'm going to get attacked by a lion. Well, nobody's getting attacked by a lion in today's world, right? But you know, if you're sitting at home and all, or you know, you're you're lying in bed, perfect. You're lying in bed. It's two o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden you hear a loud bang inside of your house, mm-hmm. and you think, okay, there's a thief inside of my house who's going to come steal something from me, right? boom, you get hit with a jolt of adrenaline. That adrenaline's purpose is to get you out of bed immediately so that you can take action and try and protect yourself against danger, right? So if you are living in a high stress lifestyle and you have multiple kids who are like constantly, you know, grabbing at your attention and you've got a boss who's demanding and you're trying to make food for yourself and, you know, there's too many things that are pulling at you and you feel like you you can't really get control of your lifestyle. Well, what could end up happening is that your adrenal cortex is now dripping in adrenaline into your blood at a higher rate than it normally would. So you're not like, you're not to the point where you're ready to like, you know, go tackle a thief that's in your house, but you're basically like overstimulating your adrenal cortex into manufacturing more adrenaline than it normally would. And as a result of that, you're now constitutively or like over the course of time, like manufacturing too much adrenaline. So you're manufacturing too much adrenaline. You're manufacturing a lot of cortisol. And as a result of that, these molecules, they go and they knock on the door of your liver and they're like, hey, liver, you got some glucose stored inside of here. Could you drop it into the blood right now? And the reason why your liver would do that is your liver is basically gonna say, okay, cool. Let me liberate a little bit of this stored glycogen I have on board. Let me give a little bit of glucose into the blood. And by doing that, it's gonna give you a little bit of fuel to act upon. That glucose becomes free energy And as a result of that, your muscles can take up that glucose and be like, cool, I need that glucose. I need to burn it right now so I can go do something with it. Right. So it's basically adrenaline can act as like a, an energy liberation mechanism to get glucose into your muscle where it's, where it's going to be used for energy. So the point is that if you're living in a high stress lifestyle and you're constantly activating this entire pathway and you're forcing your adrenal gland and secreting too much adrenaline, then you can get this thing called, quote unquote, adrenal fatigue. I don't know if that's a real you know, medical diagnosis or not, or if it's just like pop science. But the idea here is that when you do that, your liver is being acted upon to secrete too much glucose. And as a result of that, your glucose levels can start to rise. Before you know it, you check your glucose in the middle of the day, and you're like, huh, why is my glucose so high? You check it the next morning. Why is my glucose so high? You check it after you get a feel. Why is my glucose so high, right? And the answer, part of the answer is because, well, you're living in a high stress lifestyle and the high stress lifestyle is actually forcing your liver to make more glucose or release more glucose than it normally would. And as a result of that, now your liver is being implicated in increasing your blood glucose values. Does that make sense?
1: Total sense. And, and I, and I think the, the adrenal fatigue is, I don't, I don't know if it's a myth, but I think it's, it's thrown out a lot. And I think Agreed. we've had conversations about it before on the podcast. And, and I think what the, the main takeaway is that it's comes back to lifestyle comes back to how you're managing your stress comes back to sleep, comes back to how you're taking care of your body comes back to your nutrition, because if you're not taking care of those things, it's going to tap your system out really quick. And I, I, and I wanted to ask really quick is, is that why is the reason that we get, people gain excess body fat when they're stressed? Is it because of the, the process that you just explained with the unused energy and the glucose that
0: the body is kind of sending through its system? You know, I'm actually glad that you asked this question because it's forcing me to to think back to the biochemistry that I learned back in grad school. I'm going to plead ignorance on this one because I know there is a mechanism that, that, that describes how the excess production of adrenaline can cause excess mm-hmm. deposition of body fat. I just can't think of what it is in my head right now.
1: Oh, cool. No, it's something that people can look into themselves. And, and I'm glad we're having this conversation. I'm glad that we took the conversation this way because I think it's important for people to listen listening to know that it's not just about your food. Yes. Food plays a massive role, but there's other things too. You got to manage your stress. So let's talk about things that help you manage your stress. Let's talk about fasting. Let's talk about exercise. Let's talk about sleep. So let's get into those three things before we close up our conversation and in your experience and in your profession and your research and what you've seen with the people who've come through your mastering diabetes program, What's the recipe for success when it comes to sleep, fasting, and exercise to help with insulin resistance and to manage their energy
0: levels? Brilliant. Love this question. Okay. So we already talked about diet, so I'm not going to say a single word about that. Number one, exercise. Move your body for a minimum of 30 minutes per day, six days per week. Okay. Move your body for a minimum of 30 minutes per day, six days per week. When I say move your body, I'm saying moving your body in a way that gets you to be out of breath. Okay. Okay. I'm not talking about just like going for a nice leisurely stroll around the block, okay? I want you to move fast enough and and use your body fast enough such that if I were to pick up the phone and call you and I would be like, "Hey Doug, let's have a conversation right now." You'd be like, "I can't talk to you because I can't breathe enough to be able right, to hold a conversation. Right. Got to go. I got to go." Right? And then at that point, you know, that's a, an indicator that you're working hard enough. So, Number 1, 30 minutes a day, minimum 6 days a week. Number 2, when it comes to sleep, my recommendation for getting enough sleep would be try and sleep for between 7 and 8 hours a night. Okay, minimum 7 hours, 8 hours would be preferable and I know that can be hard in today's world, but if you can prioritize that, then you'd be doing yourself a huge a huge benefit. There's actually some research, which I came across not too long ago, that shows that even one night of disrupted sleep, okay, one night of disrupted sleep where you're having fragmented sleeping patterns you can't get into rem you can't stay in rem for a sufficient period of time that can you you've probably heard this before where if you don't get a good night's sleep it makes you like it's the equivalent of drinking you know three beers the next morning mm-hmm. where you're like functionally not a good decision maker one night of fragmented sleep can can elevate your glucose values the next day by like 30% so you can get a significant glucose elevation from that and you can get a significant increase in your insulin resistant mechanisms simply by having one night of fragmented sleep. So if that's happening on a daily basis, then you're predisposing yourself to poor glucose metabolism. The third question was what? It was stress, sleep and, and
1: fasting. I was actually surprised uh, that you talked about the benefits of fasting because you don't hear a lot of that with plant being plant-based. I mean, I don't I haven't heard as much of it, I should say. It's mainly a thing I think you hear a lot of that with in the keto, the carnivore community. I mean, I know that people who are plant-based fast, I mean, I know it's a thing, but I I was excited to hear that this is something you're excited about
0: as well. Yeah, for sure. So in the Mastering Diabetes book, we, the Mastering Diabetes method basically involves four components, low-fat plant-based whole food nutrition, daily movement, intermittent fasting when necessary. And then we call them documentation of like specific, you know, aspects of your life with diabetes. Intermittent fasting, I literally spent five years studying intermittent fasting when I was at at UC Berkeley. I love it. And intermittent fasting is, I mean, I remember making this statement back in the day where I was like, I was like, hey guys, it's very obvious that intermittent fasting increases insulin sensitivity, helps you reduce your body weight, improves cardiovascular function, improves cognitive function, improves the function of your liver, your kidney, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like there's literally no problem that I can think of that intermittent fasting or calorie restriction doesn't improve. Hmm. It's that powerful. Okay. But my, I, what I told my, my coworkers at the time is I was like, guys, it's not going to catch on. You're trying to tell a nation of, of people who, you know, eat a significant amount of calories and who there's a lot of addictive eating that happens in our culture. You're trying to tell those people to eat less food. It's not going to happen. It's right. not going to become popular. Right. I was so wrong. I was so wrong. Because intermittent fasting is a big deal. And and I'm still surprised at how many people gravitate towards it. So in the world of insulin sensitivity, in the world of diabetes, what we recommend is either performing an intermittent fast once per week for 24 hours. And that's a good starting place. And then secondarily, if you want to become a little bit more aggressive about your intermittent fasting, which is totally cool, doing a 16-8 intermittent fast on a daily basis is a great idea. 16 hours of fasting, eight hours of eating, and when you do that, you literally are just going to skip one meal per day, whether it's your breakfast or your dinner. And if you can do that, then we notice that people will accelerate weight loss. They will accelerate the reduction in A1C. They will accelerate a reduction in their blood glucose, and they will accelerate a reduction in their blood pressure. Mm. It's a simple prescription. And you know, start with your diet, move into exercise, move into intermittent fasting, and take your time. And it, it really is a phenomenally powerful system.
1: Awesome. I'm so glad that we touched on all those things. We talked about the importance of of changing the way you eat. We talked about changing the way you manage stress. We talked about changing your sleep, changing the way you move your body, and then changing kind of when you eat. We've talked a lot about fasting on the podcast, and it's something that I'm a huge proponent of. And, and I think it, in my experience, it has helped in my own regulation of Of blood sugar and my energy and that sort of thing. So I highly recommend it to people. And I think it's also something that to kind of start small, just like anything else, I think making simple changes over time will lead to big results. Like don't, don't try and go to start a 24 hour fast tomorrow when you haven't fasted before. Don't try and just eliminate all processed foods tomorrow when you've been eating processed foods every day for the last 20 years. Don't try and go for a 30 minute sprint when you haven't moved your body in 20 years, like start small, build up to that because longevity is everything. Consistency is everything. Anybody can get started tomorrow and, and make a big leap in their health. And then it set them back because it's hard for them to maintain. For what sure. we're looking for here is consistency over time that will add up to living a more fulfilled sustainable and healthy life. So Cyrus this has been incredible. I hope you got a lot of out of our conversation. I enjoy talking yeah. to you. And I think this is a message that a lot of people need to hear to kind of give some context on what the science says, as far as insulin resistance, diabetes, how people can do a better job at managing their own lifestyle and what they put into their body, how they move their body and how they think of how they think about their health so that they can take better care of themselves, better care of their kids, better care of their family members
0: and live a happier life. No doubt, Doug. I mean, I absolutely love it. you. This has been a great conversation. And, you know, I think that there's one thing that I want to say is that there's insulin resistance and diabetes has gotten, unfortunately, too confusing. It's overly confusing. And sometimes, you know, I read stuff that comes out of these medical journals and I'm just like, sometimes I get confused, you know, I'm yeah. and I'm just like, I'm like, are you kidding me? I've been studying this stuff for over 15 years now. It's pretty darn clear. And yet there's still conflicting information which comes out. So, you know, if you have any kind of like blood glucose related issues or pre-diabetes or type two diabetes or type one diabetes, and you are feeling confused, then just take a giant deep breath and say, it's okay. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's just because the media, the blogosphere, social media has overcomplicated it, but it can truly be a very simple, simple collection of biological processes. And once you understand them, first and foremost, then you can create a lifestyle that reverses the chronic disease mechanisms that have started. And as soon as you do that, trust me when I say, you will feel it, you will see the result in your blood glucose, you will see the result in your A1C, and it can be a complete game changer for you now and into the future. And the last thing that I want to say here is that going back to the very, very first thing that we touched on here with a ketogenic diet being a good short-term, but not a good long-term solution, a plant-based diet is without question, the single most effective long-term medicine I have ever seen in my life. There's so much research to back this up. And there's so many anecdotal stories of people who have been eating a plant-based diet for 5, 10, 15, 20, 50 years. I've been eating a plant-based diet for 19 years, 19 years now. And it is amazing how quickly the time has flown by. And, you know, for 19 years, I've had the most incredible blood glucose, A1C, biomarkers, cholesterol, lipid panel, C-reactive protein, et cetera, et cetera. I'm an end of one story, but the truth is that there's plenty of research to back this up. So if you're looking for a short-term solution that will translate into a long-term solution, plant-based nutrition is without question one of the most powerful things you can do.
1: Mm. Yeah. I love how you said that. and I like how you used your own experience to share how it helped shaped your life and what it's done for you. And then you combine that with the fact that you did go to school for this. You spent a lot of time in the research, in the science, and now teaching other people to do it. And I want to also add that simple changes in your life can add up to big things long-term. And And so while it might seem Huge to change the way you eat, change the way you move your body, change the way you sleep. In the context of life, it's very small. And if you can do the, these simple things, your relationships will get better. You'll function better at work. You will have a better outlook on life. You'll feel less stressed. You will you know, just feel better about where you're going in life. I mean, all of these things that will come as a byproduct of making these simple changes. And so, I want to invite you to to just listen to what Cyrus has said check out more on about mastering diabetes, check out some more of the literature, the science that he's talked about, dig into it yourself. So you can kind of see for yourself, like what he's talking about and the validity of it and how it relates to what you have going on right now. So Cyrus, once again, want to thank you. Where can people, where can people find out more about you? Where can people discover more about mastering diabetes and that sort of thing?
0: Yeah. Thank you, Doug. Once again, this has been an awesome conversation. I totally appreciate the opportunity to talk about this for people who are interested in learning more. There's two things that I'd recommend. Go to www.masteringdiabetes.org. There you can find everything that I'm talking about. We have plenty of research. We have a blog. We have recipes. We have a weekly meal plan. We got coaching programs. We have a do-it-yourself program. You name it. We also wrote this book right here, as you can see on the screen, Mm. Mastering Diabetes. It became a New York Times bestseller in the first week of being out, which we're very proud of. And uh, this book contains 800 scientific references. Okay. We've read every single one of them, scour the research to make sure that what the story that we're telling is not just an anecdotal story of something that we hope is true. Okay. This is backed by the best research that is available today. And if you're interested in getting your hands on this book, you can just go to Amazon and pick it up. And then if you like podcasts, cause you're listening to Doug's podcast, then go to the mastering diabetes audio experience. You can find that on iTunes and beyond. And uh, we got a lot of good information there too.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll definitely link all that stuff in the show notes. I'll put the link to your podcast. I'll put the link to your website, your Instagram page, and the book, the book for people to buy on Amazon in the show notes for people to check out, because I know there's going to be a lot of people that want more information. They want more of what you had to say. And I think with our conversation, the direction I wanted to go was to get more of the science and kind of depict some of the common things that have been said through the years about diabetes and how to manage it and things like insulin resistance and how it comes to nutrition and what you eat and some of the the myths maybe that have been Shared over the years, and then also sure. talking about more lifestyle choices that people can make to help improve their insulin resistance. And the way that, and then the way they manage their blood sugar levels and their lifestyle habits and all the, that sort of thing. So, Cyrus, once again, wanted to thank you. And for those listening, all I ask, as you know, is that if this episode touched your heart and you got something out of it, take a screenshot, tag Cyrus, tag Mastering Diabetes, tag myself with a takeaway. Maybe it was something he said with the science of diabetes. Maybe it was something that he said that you didn't know about insulin resistance or fatty acids or glucose, or maybe it was something he said about diet or nutrition or movement, exercise, whatever it was, take a screenshot, tag him, tag myself. We'd love to hear from you. We love feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.